three, two, one. Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. We come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on that website as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM. And we are also being reposted at other locations on the internet, other podcast locations. And thank you for doing that. We greatly appreciate that. We also are on YouTube, so you'll be able to actually see the programs for the first time if uh, you are not aware that we are on YouTube. So we encourage you to go there as well. Richard Dugan is the channel name. Tell Me Your Story is the program, and uh, there you go. We'll be giving you our guest website here in just a few moments as well so that you can continue your evolutionary process, and we certainly hope that you will do that. And uh, we also would encourage you to uh, spend time during the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, the decade of, the, of perfect vision. We want you to go within. We want you to find that calm, peaceful place that you can just relax in and know that everything's okay. Get the information, the insight, the encouragement that you need from within. We certainly hope that you will avail yourself of that as well. Our program today, I think you're going to enjoy from the standpoint that we're all trying to, you know, um, basically find happiness. Um, now, granted, this particular program and this particular guest are focusing on healthcare professionals, but this applies to everybody. We'll, we'll focus a bit on that, especially in, in light of where we are. And I guess, I don't know if I've termed the coin, coined the term or not, uh, the COVID era. Um, we're talking today about a book entitled Gain Without Pain. Isn't that, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, they always tell you, though, when you're exercising, when you're doing stuff, no pain, no gain. Well, Greg Hammer, MD, is telling us, uh-uh, you don't have to have the pain to gain, kids. And it has to do with the happiness handbook for healthcare professionals. Uh, welcome to our program, Greg. Thank you for being with us, Doc. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be with you. So granted, this, this is a book that is primarily designed for uh, the uh, healthcare professional, but um, it's not exclusive to the healthcare professional. No, the book is really about the, the gain method. And I think that uh, the stories relate to uh, people in the healthcare industry, but um, they're very generic. And there's another book coming out shortly. It's at the publisher. It's called Gain Without Pain, Your Happiness Handbook. And that's sort of a pocketbook version with the gain ideas uh, embedded. And um, that'll be out probably January, February of next year. Well, wonderful. And of course, by then, hopefully we will be in a, a different phase of this uh, COVID era, um, working our way through uh, to the other side of a new era, a new, a new world, as they say. I, I've been quoting REM uh, quite extensively. Uh, one of their songs, the, uh, the lyrics basically are, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's not the end of the world. This is, we're not talking Armageddon here. We're talking about the fact that we can't go back. Can't go back a year ago. I can't go back to my childhood of 40 or 50 years ago and enjoying kickball in the streets where the, the there were lawns 
up and down on both sides of the street and uh, we could play and and have a great time and the weather was fabulous and I grew up in Phoenix to say the weather was fabulous back then it it was not so much today Um, but we're all looking for happiness we're all looking for that the word that comes to my mind is that equanimity so to speak how did you first approach this concept of creating a a happiness handbook? That's a good question, Richard. I I guess uh, that would go back to my youth. Uh, If you want to get the 30,000 foot view, I've always been a seeker, uh, studied Buddhism as an undergrad, uh, decided to uh, go into medicine ultimately, where you know, there's a lot of uh, confrontation with death and dying and suffering, and I kind of wanted to get at the root of that. And uh, about 10 years ago, I would say, I started having an epiphany, uh, and that is that there's really nothing to, to look for, for which to search. It's really just inside of us. And I began to realize uh, that happiness is really our true nature. And in our course of, in the course of our development, and I take care of critically ill children and children having heart surgery and so on. I deal a lot with infants, toddlers, um, school-aged children and adolescents. And I can see that as we develop, we acquire certain ways of thinking that are adaptive perhaps for the time in which those patterns develop. But later on as adults, these ways of thinking may be maladaptive. And so I, I, was thinking about a remedy for that. And, um, you know, I've been a long time meditator and um, uh, follower of uh, Advaita or non-duality. And it just, you know, all the arrows were pointing in the direction of sitting down and teaching other people a form of meditation that I had sort of devised. And, and the acronym GAIN came to mind as I contemplated what I think are really the four pillars of resilience and happiness. And they are gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment, and hence the acronym GAIN. Hmm. Well, I, you know, one of the things that has been discussed quite a bit on this program has to do with seeking one's own happiness, as I mentioned at the front end of the program, uh, encouraging people to go within during 2020, the 2020s, the decade of uh, perfect vision. Uh, we, did the 20, uh, we did 2020, the year of perfect vision, and then we've expanded it, but we've encouraged people to go inside to find what it is that they need. They're not going to find it outside themselves. And it sounds to me like gain, as you describe it here, is only going to be found uh, from within. We're only going to get, for example, a boost to our self-esteem from within. We're only going to get the guidance, if you will, from within. Uh, Granted, you and I could chat and you could give me some information if you were my physician and you were my GP and and, uh, uh, we were chatting away about, uh, Greg, doc, what do I do about my high blood sugar, you know, and uh, my high blood pressure. See, when I was first diagnosed with high blood pressure and they ran all of the fluid tests, took some blood and this and that and the other, they found virtually nothing. I said, you're not going to find it because it's up here. I got to deal with the rest of the world up here. It wasn't coursing through my veins. (laughs) 
Is that a fair assessment of where most people are today who are dissatisfied with life, whatever element of life we're talking about, their job, their relationship, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think that people do uh, when they are unhappy, they search for remedies and people do tend to search for remedies outside of themselves. They reach for relationships or substances or experiences. And really, uh, I mean, I fully agree with you. You may need blood pressure medication, no matter how centered and resilient you are and how much at peace you are. But there's a lot that we can do for our own health just by unveiling our true nature, which is really happiness. And happiness comes from being present. If you think of all the really happy moments in your life, Richard, they are when you are present. For example, you're taking a, a hike through the forest and you're surrounded by tall trees and light filtering in through the canopy above and there's sort of a very fresh scent in the air and you're not thinking about yesterday or tomorrow. You're simply enjoying the present moment experience of the forest. And the same thing would apply for other moments of happiness if we kind of reflect, if we have an intimate period with a partner, we forget about the past, the future, we lose ourselves, we lose this sense of separation. And on the other hand, when we're unhappy, it's, I would say, always related to maladaptive thoughts of the past and the future. So, you know, we can talk about adaptive and maladaptive thought processes. It's adaptive to think back and learn from our mistakes. So that's dwelling on the past. It's adaptive to savor our wonderful memories with loved ones, friends, etc. That's contemplating the past. But beyond that, when we contemplate the past, which we tend to overdo, we really are stuck in feelings of regret and shame, embarrassment. I wish I would have done this differently. I wish I would have done that. And those are really maladaptive thoughts. And the same for the future. It's, it's adaptive to look forward to good times. It's adaptive to plan so we can put bread on the table, so to speak. But beyond that, we tend to get obsessive about our thoughts of the future, which bring fear and anxiety. And I think, um, you know, there's sort of a global fear and anxiety amongst everybody now in the COVID era, as you will. Yeah. And, um, and really, it's uh, understandable. Obviously, there's a lot of unknown, and we focus on unknowns. And because we have a negativity bias, we tend to catastrophize. We tend to think of what's the worst thing that could happen. You know, is this pandemic going to go on forever? Um, are people that I love going to be afflicted, et cetera, et cetera? So we can talk about adaptive versus maladaptive thoughts and how we can actually rewire our brains to be more present and therefore more happy. Well, gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment, uh, four elements, the four steps, if you will, uh, to that level of happiness, four steps to happiness, as you describe it in your book, gain without pain. Let's talk about these four steps. Uh, and I have to say that the first thing that came to mind when I thought about, when you mentioned gratitude, was a partner concept or word, if you will, 
forgiveness. Now, maybe that's more applicable to non-judgment, the fourth step, but it just seems to me that gratitude, uh, and, and on this program, we talk from a spiritual metaphysical standpoint, opens up so many doors when you are grateful for whatever circumstance you're in. Now, I can certainly understand the phrase, the statement, COVID was a blessing. The coronavirus was a blessing to me because, and I'm sure that you would agree, the person who is saying this says, is actually saying, you know, I learned a lot. I learned that I didn't do all the right things to avoid getting it. I went through it. I survived. And as the old saying is, what doesn't kill you <laughs> makes you stronger. Um, but at the same time, you're acknowledging and being grateful for the fact that you had the experience and you're not judging it. And you made another comment. I don't want to throw too many things out here, but you made another comment about uh, the uh, non-duality concept, which I am a firm believer in. I have been struggling with that. And I finally came to uh, a, a very good uh, a position in my life where whether you're looking at the macrocosmic or the microcosmic world, there's no judgment there. What's happening in those two realms it's just happening. That's life. But here yeah. we judge it. So let's talk about this aspect of gratitude and then dovetail that if, if, if it's appropriate, if it fits into the concept of forgiveness. Well, uh, Richard, I think that the, the elements of gain, gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment are, they're all in, in, one realm and they they overlap there's really no distinction in some ways mm -hmm. um we have to accept suffering if we're going to be grateful that much of the time we're we're not suffering or we don't need to suffer so yes and forgiveness is uh the reason i have a chapter in the book on forgiveness and compassion certainly is key to happiness and the alternative is holding grudges. And again, it's kind of an obsession with the past. It's going back and looking at a past experience or set of experiences with regret or possibly anger. And really that's an impediment to happiness. We need to focus on ways to let go of those feelings of anger and hostility, or I wish this would have happened or that would have happened and bring ourselves back to the present moment when we find ourselves dwelling on maladaptive thoughts related to the past. And to let go of those thoughts is to forgive. And especially forgiving ourselves. I think that we do dwell on blaming ourselves and you know, have a real innate difficult time getting past things that we wish we would have done differently. So I think forgiveness in general and self-forgiveness in particular are key to resilience and happiness. I even went through a phase where uh, I was able to say to this one individual, I forgive you, but more importantly, I forgive myself for allowing myself to be drawn into the drama. You know, because it's not healthy for me to, to not forgive myself. And uh, it, it doesn't mean, and I know a lot of people, they think that 
forgiveness seems to uh, be interpreted as, well, what you did was okay. I forgive you. It's okay now. No, we're not condoning the behavior. We're not condoning the action or the verbal abuse or whatever it was. We, you know, we acknowledge that that was inappropriate, if you will. But to hold on to that grudge, I think you used the word, uh, that resentment, it's, it's unhealthy for us as individuals. That, that's what's going to raise the blood pressure. <laughs> that's certainly a factor, yes. Acceptance. Uh, now, you, you also talked about maladaptive uh, uh, behavior. And some people might wonder what that is. I was shared, uh, there was a story that I was just recently shared, uh, that was shared with me in regards to a couple who have gained don't know how many pounds during this COVID era mm -hmm. that they are now heavy. They weren't before because now they're drinking, but they're not just drinking beer or wine. They're drinking spirits. Okay. They're drinking the heavy stuff, the, the hard stuff, which can put on weight because the alcohol turns to sugar and so on and so on and so on. That would be a maladaptive process that an individual would go into correct and those sort of self-destructive can we even use that word self-destructive sure yeah how do we once we have recognized you know i i need to i need to make some changes um what's what's your first step recommendation to begin that process. And I realize that it does depend upon what the maladaptive um, behavior is, but recognizing it, I know is the first step. What, what, where do we go from there? Sure. Well, I, I think there's two things we should bear in mind about the way we think. And we've talked about one of them. And that is that we tend to be obsessed with thoughts of the past and the future in ways that are not helpful to us. Mm -hmm. And the second one is that we have a negativity bias, that we tend to remember negative experiences and forget about the positive experiences. And there are a lot of data to support this in terms of uh, research studies that have been done on the way we think. So we have a negativity bias and we tend to dwell on the past and the future in ways that are unhelpful or maladaptive. I would actually point to the four elements of gain, the four domains. The first is gratitude. So in other words, if we find that we're eating poorly, we're gaining weight, we're drinking too much, we simply need to first recognize why are we doing this? We're, we're trying to fill a void. We're reaching for substances, whether they be food or alcohol or other substances in order to find happiness, to fill a hole, to fill a void. So the first thing to do is to recognize that. And then I, I again, I would, go, I would go to the gain principles. And you know, in the book I describe, there are chapters on each of these four elements and then there's a chapter afterward on the gain meditation. It's a very simple, as little as three minute exercise that we can do every morning. And, and I think the ways we learn, by the way, Richard, are we take baby steps, but we do it repeatedly. So we make a, a, a a daily practice of say doing this brief gain meditation. And so the first element is gratitude. And again, we're talking about happiness and what is it? Why don't we have more of it? And you can be 
blind and happy, you can be deaf and happy, you can be very poor and happy, but you'll never see someone who's ungrateful and happy. So gratitude is really a cornerstone of happiness. And even in the COVID pandemic, we have much for which to be grateful. For example, let's consider and compare this episode or this era, if you will, to the great influenza pandemic of just over 100 years ago, 1917, 1918. Mm-hmm. At that time, in the range of 50 million people perished worldwide. And conditions were absolutely awful for, for many, many people. Uh, they had loved ones in their homes that may have died. And there were not enough carts or trucks to pick up bodies. And people had to actually have a loved one in a room with the door closed who was deceased. There weren't enough caskets. There weren't enough places to bury the dead. Uh, medical care was was virtually non-existent. You see these, if you go to YouTube or uh, other references for the great influenza pandemic of 1918, you see warehouse sized rooms packed with beds. So you can imagine how much further we've come in terms of medical care, access to information. We may be physically isolated now during COVID, but we're not emotionally and psychologically isolated, at least we don't need to be. We can go online, we have Zoom as we're enjoying now. We have so many things for which to be grateful now, uh, let's say compared to that very difficult time 100 years ago when the globe was going through something similar, albeit much worse. So we can even be grateful with respect to COVID if we kind of bring our thoughts to the moment and appreciate and experience gratitude. So the second element is acceptance. And as you said, we're not just gonna pretend that everything is rosy. Um, So my my belief is that, you know, there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world, certainly during this time of COVID, as much as we can be grateful that things aren't worse, things are bad, let's face it. It's a difficult time. So rather than suppress or resist difficult thoughts, we can actually sit get in touch with our breath, contemplate our gratitude, and then go to a contemplation of that which is painful to us. And for me, there is a sort of global pain and suffering now during COVID. Mm-hmm. And, but even centuries past, uh, you know, slavery, uh, famine, wars, I think there's a, a residual resonance of these horrific times in human history. And certainly there are wars and people starving now, irrespective of COVID. So then then there's our own personal pain and suffering. You know, I lost my 29-year-old son three years ago. And this is the first thing that I contemplate during my gain meditation every morning uh, is accepting this. We have to discern between what we can change and what we cannot change, as a serenity prayer would have us understand. And things that we cannot change, like the loss of a loved one, we can sit breathe, actually experience the opening of our chest, the opening of our heart, and bringing this pain and suffering closer and closer until we merge with it. Until the answer to the question, can I live with this pain forever, is yes. So I think rather than resist, we need to do the converse, and that's accept pain and suffering. And usually when we bring it in, we open our hearts to it, we find out it's not as bad as we thought. 
we can yeah. manage it. We can live with it if we bring it close. And the next step in gain is intention. And as we've discussed, you know, we have this negativity bias and we have this obsession with the past and future. The good news is if we're purposeful about it or intentional about it, we can actually rewire our brains. And there are a lot of examples of this. It's intention has been studied. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of mindfulness, uh, defined mindfulness as paying attention in the present moment, non-judgmentally. So it's an intentional process, paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment. And I'll give you an example. There's a program called Three Good Things, which is conducted from Duke University, where they have studied tens of thousands of people who sign up online to take part in the program. And, and what they found is simply thinking of three good things that happen during the day as we prepare for sleep helps us sleep better and it makes us happier. So this is a great example. Rather than thinking about what went poorly during the day as we prepare to go to sleep, we actually think of three good things. So for tonight, for sure, I will have looked outside and, and spent a little time outside. And, and a good thing today is what beautiful weather it is, what, what natural beauty I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by here on Stanford campus. Um, I'll think of our conversation that's happening right now as a good thing and meeting you, Richard, and, and having a lovely conversation with you. And then I have other things going on today that I'm sure I can look upon with gratitude and, and reflect this evening what a good thing that was. And mm -hmm. so this is very easy to do, actually. We just have to be purposeful about it. It doesn't take any time. We can think of three good things as we're turning down the bed or, or doing some other activity before we go to sleep. Um, and the good news is that we can actually, by taking baby steps, having a daily practice, such as three good things, we can rewire our brains even after the age of 30 when Many of us were told our brains are kind of fixed. No, our brains remain plastic throughout life. And if we're intentional and purposeful, we can actually change the way we think. And the end is non-judgment. And, you know, we could talk about judgment for hours. Um, our brains are <laughs> constantly going through labeling everything around us as good or bad, comparing people we know to each other and to ourselves and making judgments. That person is smarter than I am. That person is, you know, not as good at a sport as I am. Um, and we, we're just constantly judging. It's in the background of our thought process almost all the time. And we're not really aware of it, but it drains our energy. And it's easy to drop judgments, again, if we're intentional about it. So I would say, you know, one uh, activity, once we're doing the gain meditation, we can set our intention for the day and and one thing we can set our intention on is, okay, I'm going to drop judgments of the first person that I see today that I begin to judge. So we're driving in our car, going someplace, I would say going to work, that would be, we'd be in the minority if we were driving our car to work, but people do. And we are driving and, and another driver kind of cuts us off, changes lanes into our lane without using their turn signal. We immediately begin to form judgments about that person. Uh, and so when we, we catch ourselves doing this, simply with a smile, let go of that judgment. Maybe that is the most beautiful person on the earth, uh, on the surface of the earth, and we don't know anything about them. Let's just not judge them. And so 
when we begin to drop judgments of others, we will eventually discover it's only rational to drop self-judgment. And again, self-judgment is probably the most difficult thing for us to transcend, but we can really embrace that it's only logical if we're dropping judgments of others to consider ourselves one of those others and drop self-judgment as well. So these gain principles are all kind of interdigitated and actually very simple to embrace if we have purposefulness about a daily practice. You know, when you talk about uh, non-judgment, I heard it said not long ago that when we judge primarily the outside world, outside of us, we are, uh, we are manifesting within ourselves an attitude of lack that we don't have enough, we're not good enough, you know, we lack something within ourselves because we're comparing ourselves to other people. I learned years ago in this business that I'm in broadcasting that I've been in over 40 years, there will always be someone better than me and worse than me, so to speak. All right. I don't want to put the dualistic, uh, th someone will have more experience than I and someone who have less experience. I want to teach the one who has less experience and I want to learn from the one who has more experience so that I can continue to evolve and move forward and transform my life and, and career and all of those kinds of things. But one of the things that we are having a real challenge with in this COVID era that you also talk about has to do with the fact that our workplace for many people is also our home. And it isn't just a question of never leaving the home. It's a question, of, especially if you have kids, all right, and a spouse who is also working from home. You can only spend so much time around all of these individuals. Even your best friend you wouldn't spend 24-7 with as much as you may like that person you 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 want to go off and do other things so this is also a challenge for us and you describe it when you start talking about the concept of burnout share with us uh, your thoughts on that and ways in which we can and maybe it again goes back to the four steps gain g-a-i-n uh, but share with us uh, this concept that you've uh, you've elucidated in your book Sure. Burnout can be defined as mental and physical exhaustion, which comes from chronic stress. We know that stress can be acute. It can be chronic. It can actually be adaptive in the acute setting. So for example, uh, you have a swimming pool, you have a toddler, you're out back, the toddler is toddling around and you hear a splash and your toddler's in the swimming pool and they can't swim. So you have an acute stress response. Your adrenaline or epinephrine in your blood goes sky high. Your cortisol also becomes quite elevated suddenly. And this may be adaptive. It actually gives you the, the strength, the presence, the wherewithal to jump in the pool and rescue your toddler. And what's adaptive about that is actually bringing those adrenaline and cortisol levels back down to baseline quickly. So that's resilience. 
So in that sense, an acute stress may be adaptive. However, when this elevation in adrenaline and cortisol, and there are other hormonal changes associated with stress, when they remain elevated, they cause us to become fatigued, distracted, our sleep is compromised. When our sleep is compromised, we're exhausted. We tend to go for sugary foods or fatty comfort foods. And so our diet is poor. And again, we crash when the sugar high is done. And this is kind of all a self-propagating process. And chronic stress is bad for our hearts and blood vessels. It's bad for our immune system. It even induces changes in our bodies akin to aging. Our chromosomes have little protective caps called telomeres. I would liken them to the little tips on your shoelaces that protect your shoelaces from getting frayed. These telomeres prevent our chromosomes from getting frayed and damaged. We know that when people are chronically stressed, their telomeres shorten. And this is the same thing that happens with age. So chronic stress actually induces adverse changes in our cardiovascular system, our immune system, and it induces a sort of aging in our bodies. And so we need to figure out how we can address this. And I think there's many, many people are chronically stressed during this COVID era. And I think the GAIN principles can be the solution to letting go of that stress and uh, living a happier life. Yeah, and I also noticed, too, that um, a, there are a lot of <laughs> phrases. I'm trying not to use them because they've been so overused already. I have to say by the end of April, I think, I was already tired of some of the phrases they were using to describe where we were. And one of the things that I have um, really worked on, shall we say, to... Uh, really put it all in perspective is this whole aspect of a non-dualistic world. Uh, the Hindus refer to it as Maya, that this is all an illusion. None of this is real for one, because everything is energy. Science has shown us that everything material is nothing more than energy. It's just how densely packed it is, you know, uh, whether or not it's a hard tabletop or it's the air that we breathe kind of thing. But I've also been very conscious of even my attitude towards those who are struggling. And have you ever read the book, Who Moved the Cheese? I have not, but I'll put it on my list if you recommend it, Richard. It's, it's, very, I ha it's been probably 30 years since I read it. It was mandatory reading by the boss. I read it. And then I explained to him that I didn't have a problem with people moving the cheese, i.e. I didn't have a problem with change. What I had a problem with was not being told that the cheese had been moved and where it had been moved to. Now, maybe I'm splitting hairs there, <laughs> but... But to me, it's a fair, fine distinction because uh, things get moved around. When I was married to my first wife, who was totally blind, I couldn't move stuff around. And I'm sure you can appreciate the fact that I couldn't do that 
because if she was looking for something and she couldn't find it, then, you know, she's, we got problems. Whereas my second wife today, she and I both tend to do this to each other. We will move things around. I'll rearrange the cupboards or the refrigerator and she'll come to me and she'll say, uh, do you know where the mayonnaise is or the peanut butter or the bread or whatever? And I'll say, well, it's right there in the, she says, I know, but it's not where I left it. <laughs> so we have that challenge. Now our workplaces have moved to our homes. And uh, so I've, I've developed a greater compassion for people who are struggling with these changes. And I know it's not the change, it's their adaptation to it. And this is where the, um, what's the positive side of mallet? What's the, what's the opposite of maladaptive? Just adaptive? Sure, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds funny, but, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things where um, we know changes, it, it's, it's a constant in the universe. And somehow, some way, we really need to find a way to accept it. Have you found any techniques for uh, em better embracing? Because it seems like we have been taught from childhood almost to fear it, to dread it, to do everything we possibly can. And this is one of those phrases I don't like, so that we can get back to the new normal. Talk to us about that. Well, you're right. We do uh, often resist change. And I think that's because our little sense of ego is uh, ourselves as a, as a separate self, as a separate ego, uh, is trying to protect itself, insulate itself. And uh, we get comfortable with that insulation in our lives that comfort zone, if you will. And we do whatever we can to prevent that from being apparently eroded. Again, it goes to acceptance though. We, you know, we, we age and we may resist the aging process. We don't like what we see in the mirror. We've got extra wrinkles or uh, what have you. And we tend to immediately respond to that notice of change and aging, for example, with resistance. And it goes back to acceptance. We need to accept the fact that life is change, continual change. And if that's causing us pain and suffering, let's incorporate that into our gain contemplation or our contemplative medita meditation. Let's focus on the fact that aging is bothering us, is causing us pain and suffering. And then open our hearts and just sort of let that in. And when we do that, when we bring it closer and closer, we find that, you know, it's not so bad. It's natural. There's a natural order in the world and we can open our hearts and accept that. So yes, we resist change. Our little separate self egos are protecting themselves. And but we can learn to change the way we think about aging and, and other constant changes in our environment and, and inside us we can change the way we contemplate or think about that for the positive rather than submitting to this negativity bias that we have, as I said, where we tend to put a negative hue on things and we tend to remember those negative things, including change that may or may not be desirable. Mm. 
Now you are uh, a uh, you're a professor at Stanford University of Medical of uh, the School of Medicine, but you're also a pediatric anesthesiologist as well as a, an intensive care physician. And I'm curious as to your observations and without uh, without getting into the dualistic aspect, the comparison without judgment here um, between the way children handle change versus adults and what changes, if I can be extremely redundant here, from a child to an adult? What, what in the world has caused this transformation as far as our not wanting change? Well, we look at a newborn and we're pretty sure the newborn is not worried about the past or the future. The newborn is not thinking of what happened 20 minutes ago when they were inside the mother's uterus. We're pretty sure the newborn's not worried about where their next meal is gonna come from. They're just present. And much of the time they look rather blissed out. But as we grow and develop, we undergo certain changes, adaptations in our, in our being. And this is necessary. We have to be weaned from the breast. We have to learn concepts of what is me, what is not me, what is mine, what is not mine. And that separation is necessary. Um, and as we, we grow into childhood and adolescence, we become more and more obsessed with thoughts of the past and future. For example, if you look at an adolescent or you talk to them, they are almost universally dwelling on the past in maladaptive ways. They're embarrassed about something they said, or they're ashamed of something they did, or they're worried about the future. They don't know what's gonna happen. Are they gonna get into the college of their choice? Are they gonna you know, find a girlfriend or boyfriend? And so this is just naturally part of the way we develop as we go through various stages um, and become a, 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 an adult who's hopefully highly functional. So. The fact is that this process of development also has an evolutionary component. So at one point, uh, you know, our distant forebears may have been living in a cave and worried and fearful that there may have been a saber-toothed tiger at the mouth of the cave. And so they had to be on edge. They had to be anticipating. They had to be, if you will, catastrophizing or thinking of what the worst thing that might happen is. But in modern times, we're not faced with constant threats like that. So let's learn to bring ourselves back to the present. We don't need to be worried about uh, where we're gonna sleep tonight in most cases. We don't need to worry about where our next meal is coming from. We can just kind of experience the present and only be in the future enough to plan uh, and, and savor times ahead that we think will be wonderful and shared with loved ones. So, the way our minds develop in many ways is kind of necessary uh, for our growth into an adult. But once we're an adult, we don't need to be constantly thinking of what's mine and what's not mine. This is me and that's not me. We're capable of a more holistic present way of being and thinking. And that's really what the GAIN approach is all about. 
We're talking with Dr. Greg Hammer, and uh, his book is entitled Gain Without Pain. Uh, it is the Happiness Handbook, and this particular edition is for the healthcare professionals, but not, again, as I said before, not exclusively. Uh, we certainly hope that you will uh, get out there and pick up a copy or go to his website, which, very interestingly enough, is Greg hammermd.com and we want you to go to that website to find out more about greg the work that he's doing you say there's another edition coming out for uh, so to speak for the layman of as it were as opposed to the healthcare professional uh, how will that how will that edition differ from this particular one well a lot of the book is is storytelling um you know we have to be uh captivated and intrigued by stories in order to really continue to pay attention. So whereas the stories in the, in the current book that you just showed it, are, are largely related to circumstances in the health professions that we encounter in the hospital or the clinic, our office, um, the next book is just uh, has different storytelling. Um, it's a bit pared down, but it is in fact rooted in, as you put it, the COVID era. So what are the challenges we face now and how can we live with those challenges and, and find resilience and happiness? One of the things that, um, one of the things that I find so interesting about this conversation is number one, you've broken it down into four steps. Uh, I've read books and interviewed authors who've got seven steps or 10 or 12 and the fewer steps, the better, keeping it simple. Um, how did you come up with gain? Well, as you, as you suggested, you know, I've studied Buddhism many, many years ago and I could never remember the, the, the 12 ways to this or the 10 steps to that, or, uh, you know, books that have the seven elements of, or seven steps to that's too many. So uh, I wanted to come up with something short that people could remember to guide them through, let's say, their morning meditation. And, uh, you know, it just kind of came to me one day. Uh, you know, I had a three-letter acronym several years ago when I was teaching meditation to my students, um, but I, it was missing something. So uh, I can't give you a more articulate explanation other than to say I think four elements is something we can get our arms around and remember. Um, six or seven or 12, that's too many for me, the, the simplistic way in which I think. So it just sort of came to me one day, Richard. Yeah. And um, what are some of the attributes of gain that you were able to glean from some of your pediatric patients? Well, you know, uh, I can relate all these elements to my clinical practice. I deal a lot with families of children who may have complex congenital problems. Uh, they may have, for example, complex congenital heart disease. Uh, their hearts are not anatomically or physiologically normal. And sometimes there's not much we can do for these patients and, and, and they, they may be dying. And what I found is what can I do for parents of those children that they don't already have others, you know, informing them about the lab test for today, their echocardiogram, et cetera. 
what can I bring to the table besides helping them synthesize all of this medical information? And what I can bring to them is just simply being present. So I kind of take a breath before I go into the room and bring myself back to the gain elements and enter the room with presence. And it's remarkable how grateful people can be under the most difficult circumstances, how grateful for good medical care, for example. And it also brings out the gratitude I feel. I feel very privileged to do what I do. And so gratitude is just a part of my thought process now. But I think my medical practice has taught me a lot about resilience and, and the amazing patients and families that I've worked with who remain grateful even under the worst of circumstances. Things could be worse. Um, maybe they would have lost their child a year ago. Now they've had an extra year to share and, and they're grateful for that. Um, I've seen incredible acceptance of the most difficult diagnoses, for example, on the part of these inspirational families with whom I've worked. And, you know, I think that intention and non-judgment are, are also part of being able to absorb and live with very difficult circumstances. So, you know, I continue to learn a lot from my patients and their families about the elements of gain. I've been on this planet for 60 years and, uh, that's a, uh, you know, less, as I like to say, less than a puff of smoke. And uh, yet I have see, heard, never seen firsthand per se, heard of and seen on television and in documentaries, the suffering and a man's inhumanity to man. And one of the lessons that I have learned in that, aside from the obvious, is that I do not need to be watching the news 24-7 uh, especially a news service that feeds my philosophy, which there isn't one. I'll tell you that right now. There isn't one. Um, to know that that goes on. I do not need to be reminded. I can feel it around me. I know it happens. And so when I am confronted by people who say, did you see thus and such on the news? No. Really? Did you see this or that? Or did you hear about this? Or did you hear about that? My wife will surprise me on a regular basis with comments like, did you hear about the story today where, and I work for a news and information station as I have for the majority of my life. No, I didn't hear about that. Tell me. What do you mean you didn't hear? You didn't hear it on your news? No, because I try not to listen because it doesn't serve me. Would you say that that would be maybe a good first step for a lot of people to help them de-stress, to lower the anxiety level by cutting that stuff off? Uh, staying off of social media, especially. It just seems to me that those would be the simplest and easiest things to do if we would but do them. Talk to us about that element. I think as you suggested, Richard, we need to be purposeful or intentional about how we comport ourselves. And, and in the example you raised, you know, how much news do we wanna watch? Obviously there's 24 seven media all around us on television, on our computers, on our cell phones. So if we, we want, if we wanted to be constantly barraged with what's happening in the world and people's opinions from A to Z, you know, we can just 
keep our screen in front of us all day. But in fact, we need to be purposeful or intentional about how much media we think is adaptive or helpful to us rather than kind of putting us in a state of hypnosis, in fact, and, and just sort of having all the lines get blurred and, and taking up space in our minds. So I think we all need to be intentional about how much media we want in our lives and then actualize that by limiting ourselves. So I, I like to have a little bit of information about what's going on in the world. I can generally get that by listening to public radio for 15 to 30 minutes as I'm having coffee in the morning. You know, I can look at my CNN homepage and see if there's anything I really need to know about and explore further. But as you suggested, it's useful to keep that limited because we can just get drawn into this sort of mind numbing experience of, of being exposed to the news all the time. So I think we all have to decide how much of that we really want in our lives and then be intentional about how much we allow ourselves uh, to be exposed to that. Seems to me that we would need to take a look at our stress and anxiety levels. Uh, that would help us to make that determination in a big way, I think. Absolutely. You know, and um, it would certainly de-stress the home considerably because if you don't think that your children, if you have them, and even your pets, aren't picking up on your stress, your anxiety, think again. I don't care how good a mask you put on. The children and the animals are more intuitive and telepathic, if you will, or empathic than you would, you would realize. And that then translates back to you that they're upset, that they're concerned, that they're worried, not about what you're worried about, but about you. Yes. And uh, oh. that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I, I have uh, done many radio, television, podcast interviews in the last several months since the book came out. And I'm often asked, you know, how do we maintain equanimity at home during these times, mm -hmm. uh, especially with children? And I, what I emphasize is, uh, first of all, I think that our, our tripod, our base, is uh, centered around sleep, exercise, and nutrition. So we need to have a schedule. We need to have a bedtime. We need to have a time we get up. That's just one element of good sleep hygiene, um, avoiding alcohol in the evening, avoiding caffeine after a certain hour, depending on how sensitive we are to it. These all contribute to good sleep, but having a schedule is important. Um, fitness, physical fitness, exercise. We need daily exercise. Go for a power walk. Go for a jog if you jog. Go for a bike ride. There are uh, resistance things you can do just with body weight at home. So there are lots of things we can do to stay fit. Nutrition is the third leg in the, in the tripod. And, you know, we need to eat in a very mindful way. And again, when we get tired, sleep deprived, we tend to get uh, low energy. We reach for sugary or comfort foods, which are fatty and processed. So let's remember to take care of sleep, exercise, nutrition, have a regular schedule. And as far as our kids, I think beside having a regular schedule and, and focusing on these elements of sleep, exercise, and nutrition, what you said is absolutely true. Our kids and our pets definitely take a page from our demeanor. So the first thing that we can do in terms of helping our children be free of anxiety is to be calm and present ourselves. 
And, uh, you know, so I think these are some first principles. But having said that, of course, it's extremely challenging for many families with school-aged children who are doing distance learning at home, sitting in front of a computer. Um, you know, I, I sympathize with people who may have a child with attention deficit disorder or hyperactivity and just how impossible it is apparently to have them at home during this time trying to learn and not having their normal social activities and, and structure during their day. So we need to help bring some structure into the household and remember the fundamentals. Well, you raised something I wanna talk about because you uh, deal with pediatrics and I know you're a pediatric anesthesiologist predominantly, but obviously you uh, do more, more healthcare in that regard uh, than just putting them to sleep and waking them up safely. Um, uh, and there are some parents who wish they could hire you to do that for them <laughs> so that their kids would, <laughs> would calm down for a period of time and then wake up and they're happy and gay and having a good time and all that stuff. But when I was a kid growing up, I learned in biology that boys and girls learn differently, that girls, just by the process of their own bi biological development, are able to learn earlier at an earlier age than boys because boys, they've got the adrenaline pumping and maybe the sugar and all that stuff. The, the, um, uh, I, I already said adrenaline. And, and, and so they can't sit still for long periods of time without moving around and wanting to, you know, I know this cause oh, I was a kid growing up and I had problems in school with being fidgety. And when I got out of high school, I started hearing, if not before I got out, stories about how they were now diagnosing a lot of kids with many of these attention disorders. And they, so they started putting them on Ritalin to quote unquote normalize them. And I thought, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you trying to normalize them? I was taught in school that boys and girls learn differently because boys are full of energy and, and girls are the other way, they're another way and so forth. And you're trying to normalize them? I don't understand. And it seems to me like this attention disorder, and again, we're talking about the alphabet here of, of disorders. And I'm not saying they don't exist, please don't get me wrong, but I'm just trying to understand from your perspective, did we lose control of the kids back in the 70s and early 80s to where we said, well, we can't handle this. We, we've got to do something because the teachers, they're losing their minds because these kids aren't behaving and da 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 And again, maybe it's because they were eating the sugary cereals and they were popped up and all that kind of stuff. Well, your, your thoughts. As, you, as, a, as someone who has worked in pediatrics? I think that there's a role for medication and then there's excessive use of medication. So I, I think uh, we are over-treating what are being diagnosed as attention disorders or attention deficit disorders with stimulants like Ritalin. Um, there is a role for Ritalin and related drugs for kids who are really unable to sit still, cannot learn, uh, are very disruptive in class, et cetera. But certainly we've overtreated that just as, you know, there's a role for limited use of medications to help us sleep. Uh, but those are 
grossly over prescribed and grossly overused. So there is a role, but um, you know, I think that has to be made on a case by case basis and, and really medication for attention deficit disorder should be used as a last resort. Certainly non-pharmacologic approaches should be tried uh, to their full extent prior to use of medication. And the other aspect of that now that I want to bring up is have, as far as you know, have there been any studies showing how those children have turned out as adults? What effect have these drugs had on the developing brain and chemistry biology of a child who is now an adult? That's an excellent question. I think that um, there may be studies on addressing that issue. Uh, I, I would think that it's very difficult to study that because there's so many elements of development and the environment that kids are exposed to, um, it's a moving target. So, you know, one could ask the same question about kids who are, were born and raised with computers and sort of this fast point and click mentality where they seek immediate gratification uh, in the video games they play at, you know, communicating with each other and so on. So, you know, there are so many elements that have been brought to bear on kids as they go through their developmental stages. It's probably very difficult to pinpoint one thing that caused a particular phenomenon or, or result. So whether it's, you know, medication for attention disorder, or is it overexposure to the point and click world of, of computers? Um, things are evolving so quickly that I think it's hard to answer that question. But I, I think you know, you and I would agree that in general, medications such as Ritalin and other stimulants are really a last resort. And so let's explore all possible non-pharmacologic means before resorting to medications. Yeah. Now you refer to Ritalin as a stimulant, is that correct? Yes. Which seems counterintuitive in my mind, if the kid's having trouble focusing, giving them a stimulant seems to be exacerbating the situation, but apparently it must have the opposite effect, which is rather interesting. And again, yeah. I know we're not, we don't need to get into the <clears throat> chemistry necessarily, but it just, it just seemed like, okay, yeah, I'm going to give this individual is having trouble walking more alcohol. <laughs> and I, I don't want to make, you know, I'm not being, I'm being facetious here. I don't want to be serious about that, but you see where I'm going with that. Yes. Well, I think that, you know, we can all relate to, for example, having a cup of coffee and, and having that caffeine help us focus and, and be more productive. So yes, I mean, a lot of medications have a variety of effects, some of which appear to be paradoxic. Um, you know, why is it that when people imbibe alcohol, which is a central nervous system depressant, they get rowdy, they get overly talkative. They seem to be in an excitatory state. Yeah. yeah. And in that case, you know, our, Brains are really representative of a homeostasis or a balance between excitatory influences and inhibitory influences. And, yeah. and those inhibitory pathways in our brain tend to have more connections and they're more susceptible to inhibitory drugs. So alcohol is initially inhibiting 
the inhibitory pathways selectively more mm -hmm. so than the excitatory pathways. And when you inhibit the inhibitory pathways, you get disinhibition or, you know, this loss of a filter in terms of what we say and how we behave. It's, it, it's an excitatory state. Yeah. If we keep drinking alcohol and our blood alcohol level gets higher, then we will inhibit the excitatory pathways as well. And, and that's when you see the individual with their forehead resting on their uh, plate of food. You know, they really <laughs> had enough that they're anesthetizing yeah. the excitatory pathways as well as the inhibitory pathways. So with regard to stimulants, yes, that, that is sort of an apparent uh, paradoxical effect, but there is a, a physiologic explanation for it. Yeah. Gain Without Pain is the title of the book. My guest is Dr. Greg Hammer, MD. He is uh, a, a doctor who deals with pediatrics as well as others. Uh, Gain Without Pain, the happiness handbook for healthcare professionals. And uh, the subtitle for the, the next release is going to be the happiness handbook, what, for everybody else, so to speak. <laughs> for Gain the layman, Without Pain, your happiness handbook. Your happiness handbook. We hope that you will pick up a copy, folks. Uh, I, I tell you, the, this whole Zoom thing has, has really uh, got me uh, working really hard on the visuals because I haven't really done that. The first time I showed a book on the screen, I did this. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I've got to learn where the camera is, where my image is, and all those good things. Uh, but it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun doing these and putting them together and making them available on YouTube. Dr. Greg Hammer, I want to thank you so much for sharing so much time with us. I know that a doctor's schedule is very busy, but I appreciate you carving out a, a small little slice for us. We've really enjoyed it. And I have three final questions for you before we wrap up. Not four, okay, such as the four steps in your book, but three. Uh, but before I do that, I want to remind our listeners that this program is heard Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at richarddugan.com. Also, the podcasts are on richarddugan.com, as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and many other locations that you folks are reposting to. And I thank you for doing that. If you like what we're doing on this program, you like what we're sharing with our guests, please support us financially if you can. We have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. We also want you to go to Greg's website, which is Greg Hammer md.com g-r-e-g g-r-e-g h-a-m-m-e-r md.com we will be linked to your website uh, uh, doctor so that people can go straight there and find out more about uh, you and the work you're doing and then hopefully when that and when that uh, uh, new edition comes out in february or thereabouts in 21 we they will be able to get a copy right away but uh see what you can do to pick up a, a copy of gain without pain uh for the uh, healthcare professional uh happiness handbook also a reminder to uh, take part in the decade of perfect vision the 2020s and we encourage you to just relax one of the first things that the doctor mentioned to us is spend some time even if it's three minutes 30 seconds just start somewhere with a little meditation just calm yourself down i i'm going to do that after this program i got to calm myself down <laughs> i get excited uh the last three questions that i have for you on the program are and again thank you for the time number one who is greg hammer that is a good question um <laughs> uh 
you know, according to Advaita, he is simply a, a transient manifestation of consciousness uh, with two arms and two legs walking around the planet. Um, Greg Hammer is uh, just a part of the universal consciousness, uh, uh, an apparent separate self, but actually not separate at all. So I'm just going to give you that answer, Richard, because that was a, a zinger. Well, here comes number two. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I hope to spread the message of gain. I think uh, it's a very simple method to bringing presence in your life and, and inducing a, a happier version of yourself through emphasizing your gratitude, accepting pain and suffering, realizing you're not alone, having purpose or intention in the way you think and, and behave and dropping judgments of others and most difficult ourselves. So I, I'm hoping to spread that message. That is really what motivates me. And finally, what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose is doing service to my brothers and sisters all over the globe. And that's the reason that I want to get this message out, which has been helpful to me and I think will be helpful to many, many others. Um, so I think service and, you know, we talked a little bit about happiness. There's, we can say that there's two types of happiness. There's hedonic happiness, which is temporary and comes from, you know, promotion at work or a wonderful meal. And there's eudaimonic happiness, which really comes from service, I would say, uh, as a very brief definition of eudaimonic happiness. That sense of, of being and experience that comes from helping others. And so whether it's in my medical practice or spreading the gain message, that is my purpose in life. And finally, what is your life's purpose? I'm just going to have to say, Richard, see above. Okay. Yep. I mean, my purpose is, is trying to help others as much as I can. It's very simple. Again, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story and uh, the information from Gain Without Pain, available at greghammermd.com. And uh, we hope that uh, we can get together with you maybe next year when the new release comes out and uh, maybe do a little compare and contrast between the two, but also talk about how this new edition will be for uh, the rest of us to be able to uh, really, uh, I think we're going to be down the road much better, but we're still going to need to dive into these elements of gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment, even when we're no longer in the COVID era. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I'd be happy to join you anytime. I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lull.